What is the most tragic story you've ever come across? Maybe it was a movie you watched, or a book you read, or a story that you heard from a friend. Maybe it was a story that you read in the Bible. A truth is, the Bible is filled with all kinds of stories of human tragedy. I just think right back to the very beginning with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Or a chapter later, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, think about the story of Cain and Abel, this brother who murders his younger brother in cold blood. Or the story of the golden calf. Or of Peter's denial of Jesus in his moment of persecution and execution. Or Judas, the disciples' betrayal of his Lord. Now, these stories of tragedy that litter the pages of the Bible, this shouldn't surprise us. Because after all, life is often tragic. And the Bible is nothing if not honest about life. But of all the stories in the Bible, there are perhaps none more tragic than the story that we read in Judges chapter 10 and 11, the story of Jephthah. And Jephthah's story begins like many others that we read in Judges, many others that we've already read in this book. Look what Judges says, chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, to open up this story. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtarot, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We've seen this before. The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord by going after other gods. But notice how things have gotten progressively worse. Right here, the narrator lists not just one or two types of Canaanite deities, but many, many gods that Israel is going after. And also, the oppression that Israel experiences as a result of their idolatry is worse. Israel, the people are made slaves by the Ammonites and by the Philistines. They are oppressed horribly for 18 years, we are told, and they cry out to the Lord, just as they have done before. This is a pattern that we have seen again and again. Israel does evil, they are oppressed, they cry out, and then God raises up a judge. This time, however, it's not quite like that. Something is different. God does not raise up a judge, not that we're told. God does not call a judge like he did with Gideon. Instead, the people go and find one themselves, and the man they find is Jephthah, this unlikely hero. We're first introduced to him in chapter 11, verse 1, when we read, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Two things were told about Jephthah from the narrator to introduce him. First, that he is a fighter. He is a mighty warrior. And the second thing is that Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. His father is Gilead, 
but his father had Jephthah by a prostitute. And because of this, Jephthah is a man who has been rejected by his family and his tribe. He has fled and he lives in the land of Tob, surrounded, we are told, by worthless fellows. This is a way to say that Jephthah's life is like some kind of guerrilla fighter or terrorist almost. And he must have had a, a significant reputation because the people in a time of crisis, they come looking for Jephthah and they ask him, fight for us. And how does he respond to them? Well, at first, he responds to their request with sarcasm and scorn. In verse 7 of chapter 11, he says, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in distress? But then when they repeat their requests for him to come and lead them, he seems to change his mind. And he says, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Now, this exchange is very revealing. It tells us something very important about Jephthah. Every tragic hero in a tragedy has a fatal flaw. Aristotle talked about this in his book, The Poetics, that the tragic hero is neither an absolute villain nor someone who is perfectly virtuous. Instead, Aristotle says, the tragic hero is a character between these two extremes. A man who is not eminently good and just, whose misfortune is brought about by vice or depravity, but by some error or frailty. Uh, the word that Aristotle uses here for frailty, hamartia in Greek, is the same word that the New Testament uses for sin. There is some error or flaw in this person's character that leads them into destruction. And what is Jephthah's fatal flaw. You can already see it appearing in this exchange. Jephthah wants power. And that's the condition that he gives for his service. He doesn't want just to be the commander of the fighting forces. He wants to be the ruler, the head of Gilead. There are two different Hebrew words that are being played off one another in this exchange between the Gileadites and Jephthah. The Gileadites ask him to be their captain, their katsin in Hebrew. Jephthah responds and says that he will only do that if they will make him their chief, their rosh. And that ultimately proves to be his downfall. Jephthah's life, we can sympathize with him. His life has been one of rejection and struggle, and this has dictated how he sees the world. The world is a place where people struggle for power, and he will do anything it costs to obtain it. Now, first, you can see in his interaction with the Ammonites that he tries to start off with diplomacy, writing a letter to the king of the Ammonites. But that doesn't work, and so war is the inevitable result. And before the battle, Jephthah makes a tragic vow. And here's what he says in chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, 
Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Why does Jephthah make this vow to the Lord? This has puzzled readers for centuries. Early church fathers and many modern readers have thought that Jephthah's actions here are a per perfect example of, of rash and foolish behavior. After all, the language that Jephthah uses in this vow about whatever comes to meet him out of his door of his house when he returns, that leaves open the possibility of sacrificing anything, be it an unclean animal like a dog or a pig or even a human being. Some have tried to be more charitable and suggest maybe Jephthah was just being overly zealous. Maybe he was trying to be pious and he just wasn't thinking it through. But maybe there's something more than rash folly or overzealous piety going on with this vow. Notice what precedes the vow. The verse right before Jephthah begins to speak in verse 29, we are told that God's spirit comes upon Jephthah. The narrator makes it clear to us that God has already freely chosen to work through Jephthah. But Jephthah doesn't treat God as a God of free grace who chooses to work through those whom he desires. Jephthah treats God as just some powerful deity to be called on and used, as if Yahweh, the God of Israel, is some pagan God that can be manipulated by sacrifice. That's what Jephthah is doing with this vow. He's trying to actually bribe Yahweh. And the biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, she diagnoses what's going on in this scene very well. She says that, the making of Jephthah's vow is an act of unfaithfulness. Jephthah desires to bind God rather than embrace the gift of the Spirit. What comes to him freely, he seeks to manipulate. The meaning of his words is doubt, not faith. It is control, not courage. Once again, this is evidence of Jephthah's fatal flaw. His life has been hard, and his view of the world and of the God of Israel is a graceless one. For Jephthah, if you want power, if you want to win, you've got to seize control. And this leads to terrible consequences, as we quickly see in the story. Because what greets Jephthah when he returns home from the battle victorious? The narrator takes very little time to tell us the results of the battle so that we can get right back to see what it is that greets Jephthah. And here's what we read. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. The one who comes to greet Jephthah is his own daughter, his only child, we are told. And notice how Jephthah responds to this. He immediately blames his daughter for his grief. And then he tells her that there's nothing he can do. His hands are tied. He must sacrifice her. 
Now, neither of these statements are true. The daughter is innocent. She did nothing wrong. And also, Jephthah does not have to fulfill his vow. If he truly knew Yahweh, the God of Israel, if he had read the scriptures that he should have been instructed in, he would know that this God detests human sacrifice. In multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy, God makes it clear that he will not abide the sacrifice of people. And also, the book of Leviticus allows for payment of vows that were made by gifts to the temple. There are ways to redeem rash vows. It's not clear if Jephthah is just ignorant of the law or if he just doesn't try. He has two whole months while his daughter is grieving, two months to come up with a solution, and he does nothing. The 17th century English Presbyterian, when he read this, Arthur Jackson, he commented, It is indeed strange that having two months liberty to deliberate about it, Jephthah was not all that time, either by the priest or some other, told both how unlawful his vow was and how lawfully he might not break it. But remember Jephthah's fatal flaw. He sees the world as a struggle for power power that is only available to those who are willing to sacrifice for it and seize it themselves. And so the narrator records Jephthah fulfilling his vow, but it is so horrified by it that the narrator refuses to describe it in any detail as if it can barely be spoken. He writes in verse 39, and at the end of two months, the daughter returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. As I said, this is without doubt one of the most tragic and disturbing stories in the Bible. What are we supposed to take from this? First, it's important to remember Jephthah is a hero, but he is a tragic hero whose fatal flaw leads to a terrible end. After the incident with the daughter, Jephthah ends up starting a civil war with the tribe of Ephraim, a, a civil war that, that ends in the slaughter of 42,000 Israelites. And Jephthah does finally get what he wants, we're told, six years of being Rosh, being chief, but the land gets no rest. It seems that Jephthah's only real legacy is death and violence. Now, what was Jephthah's fatal flaw? What led to this tragic end? It was that he refused to receive grace. He viewed the world through struggle, like a sort of Darwinian framework. For him, it was survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. And because of that, he relied on bribery, manipulation, coercion, and violence to get his way. It, Jephthah kind of reminds me of the Johnny Cash song from his Folsom Prison Blues album called A Boy Named Sue. And the song, if you know it, it's about this boy whose dad names him Sue, and then the dad abandons him. And the boy grows up mocked and picked on, always having to fight to gain respect from everyone. And finally, as an adult, he meets his dad in a saloon 
and he immediately fights him right there on the spot. And after they fight for a while, bloody each other, he pulls a gun on his dad. And right before he's about to pull the trigger, the dad explains, son, this world is rough. And if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough. And I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I gave you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's the name that helped make you strong. The dad named the boy Sue to teach him how to live in a world where only the strong survive. And this is very similar to Jephthah. Like Sue, his life's been tough. And the lesson he learned is you got to get tough or die. You fight for yourself because nothing comes for free. And of course, this isn't just Jephthah or Sue. Most of us at one time or another or all the time are tempted to live this way as if our success in life depends on our own strength, our cunning, our survival skills, how hard we can work. And sometimes, like Jephthah, we begin to even treat God as if he is this way too, as if God can be bribed through good behavior or religious activity or displays of piety, as if God is just some deity out there to call upon and use for our own ends. But to treat God like that is to wrong God because the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God we have known in Jesus Christ, he is not some pagan deity to be manipulated or coerced. He is the God who loves in freedom, as Karl Barth likes to say. And because God isn't that way, life isn't that way. It may seem like it, and life may be hard, and it may be tragic at times, but the truth is that the spoils of life do not come to those who take destiny in their own hands. That's not the way of life as Jesus teaches it to us. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6 when he's trying to instruct his followers about how they are to view the struggles in life and how they should respond? He says, Do not be anxious about life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And then, what does he say in, later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18? Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus invites us to a world, to a way of living that is dictated not by struggle and self-reliance, but by grace, where we live not as scrappy fighters, but as little children. And Jephthah's fatal flaw was that he was like that boy named Sue. He thought it was up to him. And in the end, he paid a very dear price. May you and I learn from his example. 
May we choose the way of Jesus rather than the way of Jephthah.